0: This evening we're continuing on our series looking at the Ten Commandments. And we've been looking at the first four commandments which are really all about our relationship with God. And tonight we're starting on the six um, commandments which are looking at uh, our interpersonal or relationships between uh, human beings. And this uh, next commandment is dealing with the whole question of family. So I'm going to read from uh, Exodus chapter 20, uh, page 98 in the Church Bibles i 'm um, also going to read from Ephesians chapter six, uh, verse one to four, which is on page one thousand seven hundred and eight if you 've got one of the church Bibles. Um, so if you want to turn to those i 'm going to read read to you from those and God spoke all these things, saying, "I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, jumping to verse twelve. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Then Ephesians uh, chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for these precious commands, Lord. I pray that you would reveal your truth to us this evening as we open your Word. Pray that you would just just minister this precious truth of, of your fatherhood and and help us to live in line with your will. Amen. I wonder what your first reaction is when you hear that command to honour your mother and father. I suspect there'll be a range of reactions in the room, but I imagine there's a few. The next few, first would be I would suspect that for some of you this feels irrelevant. Actually, most of us live in central London away from our families, and so actually when the whole idea of honouring your mother and father feels kind of irrelevant to our lives, our parents aren't really involved in the big decisions of our lives. They're not necessarily involved in questions like what job do we do or who do we date. Or actually, our parents kind of feel almost removed from what's going on. If, if anything, we might be thinking you know I need to stay in touch with my parents, but we're unlikely to be thinking. How do I honour my mother and father? Actually, even when we think about the family, I think this command for children to honour their parents runs in the opposite direction to how most of us think about family life. When we think about family relationships, often we think of parents caring for and providing for their children. We rarely think of of children honouring their parents. If you have your own children, or indeed plan to, then if you go to one of those kind of antenatal classes, they're probably going to be giving you classes on how to care for your child, how to bring them up, how to ensure they have a good education, all sorts of different questions like that. There's unlikely to be a class on how to help your children honour and obey you. Actually, even as adults, when we think about our relationship with our parents, as adults, often we're probably thinking... Maybe perhaps it's a bit cynical, but how can they help me? Maybe I can borrow some money off them. Maybe I can go back to their house and grab the car for the weekend or something like that. Rather than thinking, how can I honour them? And yet for some of us, I don't think it's just a question of this command feeling irrelevant to our lives. Actually, when you hear this command, for some of us, it just feels very difficult. When you hear this command, you think, how can I honour my parents when they've done X or Y? Actually, you might be thinking, if, I, if you knew my parents, you wouldn't ask me to honor them. I asked some friends earlier in the week, um, how does this command sit with them? How do they respond to this command? I heard one story, and it reminded me of other stories, really of just all the, the ways that um, when we think about this command, actually just the first thing that comes to mind is just difficult experiences with our parents. Actually, the are kind of non-ideal upbringings that most of us have experienced in some way. You might have been in a really what felt like a really healthy and normal family in many ways, but actually there were underlying dynamics, things like feeling like oh you know, you're controlled by your parents or you need to meet a certain standard that they set for you. Maybe you might have experienced some kind of um, abuse in varying different degrees. Maybe you might have felt a sense that you weren't really important to your parents. And Maybe for some of you, you hardly knew your, your parents. Maybe one of your parents left, uh, left you, abandoned the family at, at a young age. And that's true for a number at Grace. Now, I'm not saying that actually we want to start from a place of kind of blaming our parents for everything you've ever done and saying, well, you know, the reason I've got this character flaw is because of this um, experience I had in my childhood. But I will th- think that for some of you will find it difficult to obey this command because you don't respect your parents because of how they've parented you. So for coming, coming into this command, there'll be some who just find this difficult, others, this feels irrelevant. Actually, what's really interesting is that's, You've got to hear the other side of the coin here, actually, that this command is really important. I want to show you that in a few ways. The First of all, is that this is the first interpersonal command. So we've had four commands about relating to God, and the first command of how human beings should relate to each other actually is about family life. Saying so actually, really, at the centre of human flourishing, that you've got to understand how families relate to each other. That's good for human welfare second thing is actually this command is not really lessened in any way in the new testament and we're going to go on to see that in a moment jesus references it a number of times and at no point does he assume that you're not going to follow it that you're not going to obey every time he just assumes that you take this and seek to obey it and we saw that paul restated it in ephesians the third thing is that this command has a promise if you obey this command your days in the land will be long What it's saying is not just long as in like you're going to live a long life, but actually your life will be rich and fruitful, rich and satisfying. Actually, it's not like a kind of one-to-one relationship, like if you do this, you will definitely be happy, but a sense of kind of like it's in your interests. It's in your interest to obey this command, that if you obey this command, life will go well for you. It's a good idea. So this this evening, I really want to do is kind of tease out this tension. that Actually, for many in our culture, this feels difficult or it feels irrelevant. And yet actually, God's saying this is really important. To, actually, this is, a, um, this is a vital command for us as we seek to follow Jesus in 21st century London. How do we resolve this tension? How do we seek to obey this command in 21st century London? I really This evening I want to show you three things. The first thing I want to show you is why this command is here. I want to show you and explain to you the context so you understand that actually this command is here is because at the centre of God's design for, the, for, for human flourishing Actually, the family is central to human flourishing. The family is for flourishing. second thing I want to do is show you why this command feels so difficult for so many of us. Actually, I want to show you that sin is destroying a family or has destroyed the family. And the third thing I want to do is resolve that tension and show you the answer to this tension is actually that Jesus is redeeming families. And I want to show you what that looks like in our lives today. So first of all then, the family is for flourishing. Now I know for some of you this might be difficult for you to hear, but I want you to stick with me, and by the end I want to show you how this is consistent with your experience. Actually, the context for this command throughout the Old Testament is the assumption that the family is part of God's design for human flourishing. In Genesis chapter 1, humanity is given a command to be fruitful and multiply. Actually, interestingly, this command is given not to an individual but to a family this command to cultivate and to bring out the fruitfulness of the earth, to turn raw creation into civilization, is actually given to a couple, Adam and Eve, and both have a distinct role to play in that. In fact, if you were a young Israelite hearing this command, you'd know that your family plays a really central role in your life. We live in an age where we seek to craft our own identity, but actually, if you were an Israelite, you would know who you were really primarily through a, through a lens of family. You know, actually, I'm part of this tribe, part of this clan, and this is my family, this is my father's house. So actually, you have a sense of who you are by knowing your family. Actually, there's also the expectation that the family would provide for you. Think about Proverbs 31, uh, when it talks about the the kind of wife of noble character, and she's praised for running a business, for planting vineyards, and providing food for her household. So So there's a whole kind of idea that the family will practically provide for you. And beyond the practical matters, your family were responsible for ensuring that you would follow God. Think about Deuteronomy chapter six. um, And these words that I command you, it's talking about the law, today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. God is expecting the Israelites to be ever instructing and teaching their children. Actually, the family was not just practical provision, but also responsible for teaching their children the way of the Lord. Actually, just think about a book like Proverbs. Actually, it's full of different instructions from father and mother and encouraging children to listen to their father and mother so that they might show them the way to live. So actually, the context of this command really is that faithful parents were there ensuring their children knew who they were, knew they were provided for, and knew how to follow God and how to live. So really, when you understand the context in the culture, you understand that this command is really a response to this, that we honour our mother and father out of respect and gratitude for the way they are, the channel of God's blessing in your life. Actually, you get the idea that parents are like God's gifts to their children. And so really, when you obey this command, you're living in line with the gift. You're receiving the gift that God's giving you, and you're living in line with, the, with how he's called you to live. Of course, this is true for us too. As much as we have experienced imperfect parenting, we should all be able to look back and see the ways that our parents have provided for us in some way. Even if they're not Christians, actually, you'll be able to see the way that God has used them in your life for your benefit. I think about um, a few years after I became a Christian, I just felt from the Lord to um, just write my parents a letter just to say thank you for the way that they'd financially provided for me how they'd sacrificed so much for me. And even though we have a radically different worldview and a different understanding of what uh, is best for our lives, my um, parents aren't Christian, I just really was struck by just how much they'd sacrificed and provided for me. And actually, this sense of gratitude is one of the ways that will help us as adults to honour our parents. Now, I suspect that some of you might be hearing this and saying, well, what about the New Testament? I get that this is true in the Old Testament, that it's a familial culture, that family is central, but what does it mean for us in light of the New Testament? Well, the first thing I would say is it doesn't actually change that much. The New Testament doesn't make any assumptions that this command is no longer relevant in the lives of those who follow Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul restates this command to honour our mother and father as a basis for his instruction for children to obey their parents. Actually, just a little bit later in 1 Timothy, Paul reaffirms uh, that same expectation that parents will provide for their families. In um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So actually, in the New Testament, we get the same expectation, that same biological responsibility to provide for our family and to, um, to teach them the way of the Lord. Actually, even in response to that, there's that same expectation that we would honour our parents in response to that, just in the way that Jesus uh, restates this command and expects that people will follow it. Actually, if anything, the New Testament widens this command. In the Old Testament, you're called to submit and honour your parents. But actually, in the New Testament, we see a larger pattern of authorities that God places in your life for your benefit. Think about civil authorities in Romans 13, which are called to obey, or uh, church leaders, or or parents in this case. Actually, there's this whole principle that you kind of get in the New Testament of one of actually of submission and honouring authorities that God has placed for your benefit. Actually, this is a a radically different way of thinking about um, life than than most of us do. Most of us start with the assumption that we are the best people to make the judgment about what's right for our life. And so we'll respect and obey authorities insofar as it helps us, insofar as it's good for us. But actually, I think this whole idea of of God placing authorities in your life comes really from a place of humility an expectation. Actually, I don't have all the answers and that actually I trust God's sovereignty. And because I revere Christ, I I, I respect the authorities that he's placed in my life. Now, of course, always when when we talk about submission to these different authorities in our lives, there's always a sense that it's in the Lord. That actually, if they're calling you to do something that's not of Jesus, that you're not called to submit and obey them in that way. And we see that all the way through the book of Acts, how much they resist when the, the state authorities tell them to, uh, go to stop preaching. They're like, no, absolutely not. We're going to keep preaching about Jesus. But it's that sense, that posture of submission, which comes from a place of humility. So if we've established then that this command is for followers of Jesus, then we have to ask, well, what does it mean? You see, the word honour is quite a foreign concept for us in our culture. I say really, for most of us, um, we're not parents here. Most of us are not parents. And so I want to focus particularly on what it means for us to honour our parents as adults. Actually, John Frame, a biblical scholar from the US, uh, broke it down into three categories. He talked about the idea of respect, obedience or submission, and gratitude or support. First of all, respect. Actually, we're called, as part of this word honour, actually, there's an element to which That changes your attitude. Actually, I would argue that the whole picture really of this word honour should radically change the way you you relate to your parents as adults, the way you you see them, and actually should increase your sense of responsibility towards them. This idea of respect is not into the detriment of a reverence for God, but actually as a result of your reverence for God, you will humbly respect the parents that he's placed into your life. Respect partly because of their age—an expectation that as they get older, actually they, they, they've got wisdom to teach us. It's um, a little bit of a kind of an Eastern idea. In, in one Timothy chapter uh, five verse one, it says, "Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him." This pastoral instruction that Paul gives Timothy, saying actually there is a different way to relate to an older man than a younger man. Actually, that you don't rebuke him, but encourage him. So what he's saying actually is relate differently to people according to their age. And that's that's implicit within that idea is actually that because your parents are older, there's something that they have to teach you. So that at least requires a kind of leaning in, a willingness to hear, a willingness to consider what they have to say to you, even if you you, you might eventually disagree with them. And there's another idea here, which is almost like I talk about respecting the office rather than the person. If you're in the US military, they say, you salute the flag or you salute the uniform, rather than saluting the person. It's the same idea here, that actually when you're respecting your parents, you're not just respecting um, them. You might say, well, actually, they've got very little to recommend them personally for that respect. But what you're doing is respecting the role that they've been given in your life. So really what I want to ask you is, do you honour your parents by respecting them? Do you talk about them respectfully? What's your response when maybe they challenge you or even rebuke you? Are you willing to respectfully hear that? Perhaps you need to ask their opinion a bit more. Consider what they have to say into your life. So there's an an attitude of respect here. I think also implicit in this idea of honour is obedience or submission. Now I want to be clear here that I think the obedience it's talking about is obedience as a child and not as an adult. Um, Let me explain. There's two places I get this from. The first is Genesis chapter 2. Right at the beginning Genesis, it talks about a, father, a man leading, leaving his mother and father and being united uh, in one flesh. And it's that whole idea that as you grow up to adulthood, you leave the authority of your parents. They are no longer um, being obedient to everything they say. Similarly, in Ephesians 6, that passage that we read um, at the beginning, that instruction for children to obey their parents is in the context, in verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So it's talking about children as they're being brought up. So that instruction to obedience is for for children rather than adults. And I think actually this is a challenge to both Eastern and Western ideas of um, relationships with parents. It's a challenge to the Eastern mindset... Because they saying, actually, as a grown adult, you're not required to be obedient to your parents. Actually, it will cause you all sorts of problems. Think about if you get married and um, you, you're, trying to form a, you're trying to work out a dynamic with your husband or wife and, and, and kind of say, well, what do we believe and how are we going to live? And then all the time you're saying, well, actually, I need to be obedient to my parents as well. That's going to really cause un, an unhelpful tension in your marriage. So it's a challenge to the Eastern mindset and say, actually, you're not obedient. Then you're not primarily called to be obedient to your parents as adults. But I think it's also a challenge to our Western mindset. It's actually talking about like a posture of submission. Even as an adult, a willingness to listen, to ask questions, to humbly hear a rebuke. It's a a posture of respect and submission to our parents. And third aspect of this then is gratitude or support. Now, again, this is so countercultural, I think, to a Western uh, mindset. But actually, the, the Hebrew concept of honor here actually expresses the idea of financial support. And uh, Paul draws on this uh, when he gives an instruction in 1 Timothy for how to care for widows. He said, Verse 4, honor widows who are truly widows. So that's an instruction to Timothy about the church to honor widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. What he's talking about is a sense of familial responsibility. That actually, saying, look, as a church, you know, care for those who are in need, but actually the first responsibility is for the children and grandchildren. Actually, they have a responsibility for their parents. It describes them as part of their own household, which, if you remember from uh, earlier, he said, actually, if you don't provide for your own household, you're worse than an unbeliever. It's also the idea of return there. Do you notice? um, Learn to show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents. So it's almost a sense of actually living out of gratitude for um, how your parents will inevitably have cared for you. Actually, you return. You give something back to your parents. I think this is just so challenging to our Western mindsets, the way we think about um, relationships between parents and children. So often it's the financial flows are from parent to child. And yet here it's actually saying you have a responsibility to care for your parents financially. Uh, You know, I think I I do really understand this primarily in terms of responsibility. uh, That right now my parents aren't in a place where they need financial support from us. But actually if they come to a place of hardship, then I have a responsibility to care for them. But obviously, you've got to to work this out before the Lord in each family. So really, what I want to paint you a picture then overall is that God's design for family is almost like a cycle of blessing, that parents bless their children, they provide for them, they teach them to obey Jesus, they show them how to live, and children bless their parents. Actually, they obey them in childhood, and then they honour and respect them in adulthood and provide for them when they're in need. Really, this is kind of a beautiful, divine system of blessing. But for most of us, as you hear this, I suspect you might say, this is actually not a reality. This is just not the reality in my life. Actually, it's like I've shown you the theory, but you're saying, well, this is not how it works out in practice. Which actually brings me on to my second main point, that sin has and is destroying families. As much as we've seen the design that God's designed for families, what was intended for good has been corrupted by sin. Actually, right from the outset of when families are created in Genesis, we see that sin gets into families and destroys the relationships. Think about uh, just after Adam and Eve disobey God. uh, They reject his authority in their lives after sin has entered into the family, just the next generation, Cain kills his brother out of jealousy and a sense of inferiority. Um, A few chapters later, Jacob uh, collaborates with his mother to deceive his father to rob his brother of his birthright. So what we see over and over again, particularly in in that family lineage in Genesis, is examples of sin getting into the family Actually, the people rejecting God, hurting their families, and destroying each other, in the, uh, hurting each other in the process. Actually, we see the same pattern today. Actually, the re- when we look at the world and we say this design for family is so often um, not the reality in our world, actually, it's because sin has got into the family. And we see sin um, really destroying the family in two ways, I would argue first way we see it is just parents not uh, responding faithfully to this command, uh, abusing and neglecting their children, hurting them, not loving them, not shepherding them as they were called to, rather actually neglecting their responsibility to teach and care for their children. Actually, we see this pattern of kind of generational sin where one generation deals with their children in a certain way, which is harmful, and then the next generation learns that way of dealing with their children and then con- thinks that's normal and continues it. So you get the, the pattern of sins of the father just going through generation to generation. So you get the idea of parents even neglecting their responsibility to be parents at all and absenting themselves from the family, removing themselves from that role, from that role to provide such an important role of, of, of loving their children unconditionally. So you see all sorts of different ways how sin gets into the parent relationship and hurts their children. But actually... And I would argue, by the way, that's, that's even in, in kind of open inverted commas, normal families, where you get, pa- uh, you know, two parents. Actually, there's all sorts of different things there where it might be performance-based love, might be control, or all sorts of ways where, where parents, imperfect as they are, um, don't live in line with this command. Actually, often the family is a place, a context where sin is most obvious because the barriers come down and so you kind of see the people for how they really are. And in that context, um, you can see sin having its effect. But also I'll argue there's a second way. And we see this uh, in 1 Timothy chapter three, when it describes uh, the way that children relate to their parents. It says, you should know this Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. Actually, it's describing almost a way where the children themselves have, have, have um, failed to provide this kind of due regard to their parents. Actually, they've lived selfishly, self-centered, focused on themselves and ignored their parents, disobeyed their parents. A sense to which they've, they've scoffed at God and rejected the authorities that he's put in their lives. So actually, I think it bo- works both ways, that we see the parents uh, neglecting their duties and the children um, being pride proud and rejecting uh, their parents. So we see the cycle has broken down. We see how it's designed for human flourishing, and yet we also see how sin has destroyed families. As we see these two, point, these two uh, realities, we say, well, what can be done? What's the solution? And the good news is that Jesus is redeeming families. Actually, last week, um, Andrew re- reminded us of this picture of the way that as um, just as the Israelites were redeemed from slavery and brought out into a plate, the promised land, and brought into freedom, actually Jesus has redeemed us from slavery. Actually, just in the same way as they were slaves to Pharaoh, we were slaves to sin. Actually, sin dominated and reigned in our lives. And as Jesus died on the cross, he destroyed the power of sin and death operating in your life. Yes, we'll still experience sin, but actually sin no longer controls your life. And so just as Jesus has redeemed us from that sin, actually, that, that redemption that he brings from sin has wonderful implications for family. I want to show you three ways that Jesus is redeeming family. I want to show you that it means we have a new father, it means we have new relationships, and we have a new family. So first of all, new father. Actually, the central thrust of Christ's redemption is to give us a new father and a new family. In Ephesians chapter one, verse five, he says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross has dealt with the problem of sin that separated us and divided us from from God the Father. And actually, by doing that, he's meant it that we can be adopted into God's family and that we have a new father. And of course, this new father comes with a perfect love. Actually, if you're not a Christian here, I would argue that you have never experienced this perfect love that comes with our Heavenly Father. In 1 John chapter 3, um, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world did not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. John is keen that the Christians that he's writing to understand that they are God's children. And actually that they have become God's children out of the perfect love of their heavenly father. Actually this father God is very different to often the models of fatherhood that we've experienced. I was once on a uh, kind of prayer and healing course and... um, What's really interesting is uh, they described how so often we can project onto our Heavenly Father our experience of earthly fathering. So they got us into a room and they said, right, what was your earthly father like? And all sorts of people in that room had very different experiences. And someone said, you know, absent and uh, maybe ungenerous, unloving and all sorts of different difficult words. And then they say, what's, what's your Heavenly Father like? And actually they came up with almost identical words. But actually there's a sense to which we, we I suppose we take... The corrupted system, I think it's meant to work the other way around. That we're meant to say, oh, actually, I had a good father. Wow, God the Father is like that. It's the op- but actually, we take it and we, we apply the same broken model almost. So we say, actually, my, I had a broken fathering, and then we apply that to God the Father. And so it's really important that actually we remember and we clarify what is the character of this Heavenly Father who we've been adopted by. You may have had a father who was unfaithful to his promises who let you down, who wasn't there, who didn't care for you at significant points in your life. Actually, we worship a God who is always faithful, who's revealed and demonstrated his faithfulness throughout Scripture. Think about in... Um, The story of the people of Israel and the way God was so keen that they would know his faithfulness. that He he reminded them that he took them out of Egypt. And then as they were in the desert, he was providing for them each day that manna from heaven, teaching them to trust in his faithfulness. So important that we see the faithfulness of our heavenly father. Of course, he gave them all sorts of different promises throughout the Old Testament that he showed his faithfulness to in bringing Jesus the Messiah to show his faithfulness. You may have had a father who was cold, maybe a sense of being cut off and ungenerous, um, unloving. Actually, we've been adopted by a father who wants to generously share his love with us. who wants to generously share his heavenly dwelling with us. John 14, um, in my father's house there are many rooms. Our father has a, has a room for each of us wants to generously include us in that place. Generously pours out his spirit on us without... Any kind of sense of, um, you know, just a little bit. And she's just a kind of generously pouring out our spirit, his spirit on us. He generously includes us in his joy. In John chapter 16, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Actually, our father wants to include us in his heavenly joy. She's very different to an unloving father that you might have experienced. Some of you... Have experienced a father who is absent, maybe left you early on in your childhood? Should we worship a father who is present to us by his spirit. By his spirit, this father has come to make his home in us. John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. We worship a father who's not absent to us, who will never leave us or forsake us. Actually, a father who is faithful, who is generous with his love. We worship a perfect father who pours out his love for us, who reveals that truth to us by his spirit and actually lives in us by his Holy Spirit. And this truth about our perfect heavenly father is like a healing balm, the solution to the brokenness that many of us are carrying from broken relationships with our earthly fathers. Psalm 68 describes God as father of the fatherless. And actually, I I almost want to encourage you that there should be an emotional resonance to this truth. That actually there's an emotional response that it should well up within us. It's not just an intellectual truth here. Actually, there's a truth that you have been received, that you've been adopted as a son in his family and that you have a heavenly father. That's why in that verse that Danny um, read out to us, we cry, Abba, Father. It's talking about like a guttural cry that comes from within us. Actually, that sense of just confidently being able to approach our father in heaven with a deep security and a knowledge that we are his children. And by his spirit, we know that we have our heavenly father. Actually, we are rejoicing that we have our new father. But I also think this means new relationships. As we experience the father's love for us, Actually, we have a new purpose and a power to love our families, regardless of our experience growing up. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Actually, because we've experienced and encountered the love of God, actually, so we have the have this love, this love that we've received from God is actually the love that we pass on, that we pass on to the world and all sorts of different people, but not least our parents. So I think the most obvious imperative here is the imperative to forgive, forgiveness. Forgiveness, forgiving those who hurt us is the most logical outworking of the gospel, Think of the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. You know, there's a, a servant who comes uh, before their master who owes them apparently about the equivalent of six billion pounds, like an absolute astronomical amount that they have no chance of paying back. And the servant pleads before his master and says, will you kind of have, have patience? Will you, uh, I'll, I'll pay you back. But his, his master takes pity on him and he forgives the debt. And so as the servant walks out of the, of the palace, um, he, he sees another servant who owes him a few thousand pounds. And actually, as much as that other servant pleads to be forgiven of the debt, this first servant who's been forgiven this huge amount of money doesn't forgive the debt. He, makes, he takes them to prison to, to, to pay the debt. Or until they can pay the debt. But when the master hears of this ridiculous hypocrisy, this double standard that the servant is not willing to forgive a much smaller amount than what they've been forgiven, he brings him back and he um, and says, you, you, you didn't have mercy. Basically, he highlights his hypocrisy to him. He says, How, um, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he delivers him back to the prison until he pays the six billion. So essentially forever. If you've experienced forgiveness from Jesus, if you've experienced the Father's love, then it's only right to pass that on, to forgive those who've hurt you. This naturally flows from a heart that has been transformed by the grace of God. What do I mean about forgiveness? What would it mean to forgive your parents? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean denying that they've hurt you. It doesn't mean suggesting they haven't done anything wrong. It doesn't mean excusing what happened doesn't mean, well, you know, I understand they were young or whatever, or all sorts of different things. Um, actually, forgiveness means eliminating the debt. The language that's used in that parable um, is the master forgiving the financial debt. Actually, when you forgive someone, it's almost like they owe you a debt. They owe you a debt of what they've, uh, they've done to you. And when you forgive them, you're taking that debt and you're ripping it up. And you're saying that debt is no longer true. I absorb the cost. That debt is forgiven. It's gone. No longer will I remember this debt. So as you forgive someone, you're eliminating any sense that they owe you anything. And whilst forgiveness and forgetting are not exactly the same thing, I think as you forgive someone, actually, over time, you will start to forget what they've done to you. Because it's the power of that thing that you're holding over you. You know, you would be saying, you know, I've met people who years later are still angry with their parents for what they've done still bitter and kind of recriminating over their mind what they've done to them. Actually, as you forgive them, you're free. You're no longer holding that against them because you've forgiven the debt. Now, I would say that forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. And if you've experienced a really abusive experience with a parent or a partner or whoever, actually, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that you need to then go and be around them. Actually, that's something to to think about and to pray about with some wiser people. Um, They... You know that, that person might still have the potential to hurt you and you've got to work through that. Um, we're not saying you need to go back into an abusive or unsafe situation. But I do think that forgiveness is, is really powerful. Actually, this was my story. I, I'd had a difficult relationship with my dad growing up, um, things that he'd done, and then also my response to him. So by the time I became a Christian at the age of 20, I had a real kind of deep sense of animosity towards my dad. I didn't trust him. I didn't... Um, wasn't really for him. I didn't really think he was for me. And I just, you know, I, I was warm to him, but there was just a, something inside me that said, I, I don't trust you, you're not for me. And then I really encountered the love of, my God, of God the Father. It really started to change my heart. Um, to the point, I was telling my mum about this, she's not a Christian, and she was saying, you're kind of anthropomorphizing God, that you've kind of found this kind of psychological need and in speaking into your, your, fa- your difficult experience with your father. I could say, well, actually, I'm not making this up. This is true. This is what God the Father's like, and he's ministering to the hurt um, that I've experienced. But actually, I was also able to forgive my dad. And this is a process. I prayed through it with people, and um, I wrote him a letter, and destroyed it, and all these sorts of things that were just so powerful. Um, And as I forgave him, I experienced such freedom. Actually, despite the fact that he's not perfect, and we, we disagree, I absolutely adore my dad. I love him to pieces and my relationship with him is utterly transformed because of the way that I was able to forgive him and the way that God had changed my heart. Actually, I'm not looking at him to meet those old needs that that he didn't meet. Actually, instead, I'm just able to love him um, in a kind of free and almost disinterested way, if that makes sense. I'm not looking for him to meet my needs because I can just love him in a free way. Actually, I'm able to respect and honour him as a result. So there's new... Father, new relationships, and finally, new family. It it would be really remiss of talking about the family, talking about God's design for the family, to miss that actually the New Testament changes something very significantly, and that's that our family is not uh, only, or even perhaps primarily, biological. Actually, those biological responsibilities still exist, but actually we have a spiritual family. And that spiritual reality is really tangible, Mark chapter 3, verse 31, quite early on in Jesus' ministry, his family are outside uh, a, a place that he's ministering to. It says, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sis- and sister and mother. Actually, Jesus is starting the beginning of a truth that just comes all the way through the New Testament that actually there's a new family. The people of God are not primarily um, ordered or structured around biological lines, it's not the people of Israel anymore. Actually, the people of God is anyone who follows Jesus, who's been redeemed by his blood. And actually, that they are the new family of God. They are the people under one father that he's united them together. And actually, I think with that comes a new loyalty. Actually, you know, all the time, there's an expectation in the New Testament that following him might involve rejection from your biological family. But actually, you have a, almost a higher loyalty, in a sense... Actually, that you've now come to follow Jesus, and He's brought you a new family. So, in, in Mark chapter ten, um, the disciples are telling him about how they've they've left their family situations to follow Him, and He says, and this is their this is His response. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or, um, or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Did you hear that? Those mothers and brothers and everything else is in this time. I don't think he's just talking about a biological family. Actually, he's talking about a new family that Christ is forming around himself, who can call Jesus a brother, who can call God our father. And actually, this is just such good news for our city, a city where so many feel lonely. Many have left their biological families to come to the city. Actually, we're saying we're creating a new family here. We're living out what it means, the reality of being Jesus' family together in Grace London. Actually, we can say to people as they come in, don't worry, if you've left your family, you've come here, we're your family. We love you, you've, you've found home. In, uh, in Psalm 68, uh, verse 6, says, uh, I think it's, he puts the lonely in families. So a sense to which we're in calling out to Londoners saying, we, are, we, have, we have family here, come and join our family. So what does this mean for you? Well, I, I want to argue, actually this is a real sense of responsibility For each other, actually, just as we talked about the responsibilities towards your biological family, actually, there's a sense to which this means that we have responsibility for one another. Kind of, if you you thought you had enough bad news that you're now financially responsible for your parents, (laughs) you're also responsible for each other. So I'm I'm, I'm really adding to your responsibilities here. John chapter 17 said, "Love." um, Sorry, by your love, they will know you are my disciples. So there's a sense to which that this we are building such a beautiful countercultural community as we attract all different sorts of people, and together we start to live this New Testament reality of a family, a family that's investing in one another, a family that's serving one another, a family that's caring for one another. Even you know Acts chapter two, they're sharing with one another in in, in need. There's a sense of making sacrifices for one another. Actually, there's there's a kind of invitation here to commit. Actually, if this is not your experience today, if you're n- new to Grace London or maybe you know a while and you say, actually, I don't experience this. This is not my experience of church. I want to say, then I'm going to invite you to commit into this, to actually treat people as your family. We are your family, to respond to that command. And actually, as you do that, as you commit and invest in each other, you will experience this reality. But it starts actually with a commitment. I think this is also a challenge to our individualism. You know, you might have heard the rest of the sermon, you say, well, my, maybe your parents have passed away, you don't have your own children, and you say, well, this, this command's not really relevant for me. This, this is not really... Actually, I want to say it's the exact opposite. Actually, that we have a responsibility to one another. Just in the same way as, you know, in, a, in, a, in an earthly family, you honour your, you your authorities a similar way, we honour church leaders, we... Um, just in the, in, the, in the same way as in the earthly family, you care for those who are struggling financially. Well, actually, you remember 1 Timothy, before he talked about the responsibility of the family, he says, you care for the widows. So actually, the church family are responsible for one another. And as we live out these obligations, as we seek to serve each other, as we embrace this command, I think the people of Grace London and all the other Christians who obey this command will stick out like a sore thumb in this city As they stick out like a sore thumb, as people see the countercultural way that we're serving one another, we're investing in each other, we're sharing with one another, as they see that love that exists between us, that will be just such a beautiful uh, picture of what it means to be part of Christ's family. That'll be such an attractive picture. You talk about the aroma of Christ. That will just speak so powerfully to those who come in and see that in our community. And of course, that's with the knowledge that we're united together with one Father. Of course, we're still caring for our biological families, but actually we know we have a new family and a new spiritual responsibility. So then I think I want to lead us then to respond to this truth. First, if you're not a Christian, then I want to invite you to come and meet your Heavenly Father. But I want you to know this is not just a, an idea, actually this is a truth, that you have a heavenly Father who loves you and wants to be united with you. And by the blood of Jesus on, his cro- on the cross, actually you've made it po- he's made it possible for you to be reunited with your heavenly Father. If that's you, then we'd love to pray for you afterwards. We'd love to, to minister this truth to you and, and show you how you can um, be reunited with your Father in heaven. And if you are a Christian, then I think there's just all sorts of of different things that, that way we can respond to this. There will be some of you who, who hear this truth, and actually you hear a challenge that you need to forgive your parents. That there's an element of healing that might that the Lord needs to do. Maybe a new attitude to put on, new responsibility to embrace. The others of you who need to hear this sense of that you have a new family here, people here to serve, to love, and invest in. And then for some of you. I suspect this is just a wonderful truth, the wonderful truth that you have a new father. Actually, he wants to minister to that into your hearts. So what we're going to do as we, as we sing this next song, um, we're going to I'll invite God to minister this wonderful, precious truth to our hearts. And of course, we'd love to pray with you and to um, invite God to work in your hearts. We, we have a wonderful father who's not... Uh, unstinting in his love. He's actually generous and wanting to pour out his grace on us and to minister this truth to our hearts. We start with that with that assumption. Um, why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us. The band are going to come up and lead us in this truth. Lord, we just thank you that you're our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you've adopted us by, by the death of your son, Jesus, on the cross, that we have been welcomed into your family, Lord. We thank you that you've adopted us into this family. Well, would you come and minister this truth to our hearts as we worship you? I pray for those who need to, need to hear, need to respond to this command. Actually, Lord, that you would, you would give them your grace to forgive their parents. You've given me your grace to honour their parents differently, to respect them, and to, um, to just live in line with your command in this way. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you that your, your commands are, are for our benefit, actually, Lord. Your, your authorities are there for our benefit. We thank you, Lord, that you've placed these authorities over us. We thank you that you've, you've given us your truth and these commands to live by. We want to honour you, Lord. We want to respond to that truth. Because you're so worthy, Jesus. Amen.